Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, we hear God's word. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Amen. We will stop there for now. And we've come to chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians. And Paul has been, in the first two chapters, pouring out to the Ephesian Christians a great account of what God in Christ has done for them. He redeemed them. And not only for them, but for all believers, those who know him, redeemed by his blood, have been united together, those who are truly his, into one body. That's the theme of Ephesians chapter 2, at least the second part of the chapter. That God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is that he will bring us together in one body so that at the end of this age, whenever this might be, he will present that church, that great blood-washed throng, as evidence of his great power and of his tender mercy, and of his rich grace, and of his loving kindness. And all of that is the work of God for us. He did it. 
Paul stresses that over and over again in Ephesians 1 and 2. That it is all of the Lord, that salvation is God's work, that it was he who chose his people. It was he who redeemed his people. He adopted us into his family. He keeps us by his grace, and he will present us one day as his glorified church. So it's all God's doing. In fact, as we learned in an earlier week, the only thing, the only command that we are given here in this opening two chapters of the book is that we would remember what we were before we knew God's grace. Wherefore, remember, so that we would fully appreciate the greatness of the saving work of Christ. Now, Paul is going to pray for the Ephesians. And the reason he's going to do that is because having explained all of that to them, having given them the theological basis of their status in Christ within the church, God's wonderful church, the body of Christ, he's then going in verse in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to tell them what is to be their practical response. And I look forward to that. What is our practical response to God's saving grace? But before he does that, he wants to pray for them. And so in chapter 3, he's going to pray for these Ephesian believers so that their hearts and their minds will be prepared for what's to come in the rest of the letter. So he begins, and then he stops. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and compare it in your Bible with verse 14. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knee. The two verses start in a very similar manner, don't they? Both verses begin with the words, For this cause. And that's significant. Paul is obviously referring to what he has already taught in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It is because we have been redeemed, because we have been given new life, because we have been brought under the terms of God's covenant, into God's covenant people, engrafted into Israel, that Paul wants to pray for the spiritual progress and development of these Ephesian Christians, as he's going to do in verse 14 to verse 21. Yet, as soon as he mentions that obvious connection, something else occurs to him. I'm sure it's happened to you too. You've got something really important to tell somebody, or to tell them something that's vital. And just as you go to tell them it, a thought occurs to you, and it's such an urgent thought, it's such an important thought that you can't actually wait. My problem is that if I put off telling you something right now, I might forget to tell you it later. I've got a very, very short memory. So whatever it is I have to tell you, I need to burst in on what I'm telling you 
now and tell you something different, and my chain of thought seems to be broken. Do you know what I mean? Hasn't that happened to you? You've been engaged in a conversation with someone. You've been telling them something that you think is important. And, and suddenly this thought comes into your head and you, you say, just a minute, I've got to tell you something else. Before I go on, I've got to explain something to you. And then later on, you go back to what you were originally going to say. Now that's exactly what's happening here. Paul wants to pray for the spiritual progress of the Ephesian Christians. And yet as soon as he begins that, something happens to him. Something occurs to him. And from verse 2 down to verse 13, he explains to them that he is a prisoner, that he is a pastor, that he is a preacher, that he is a missionary. He explains to them about how God revealed himself to Paul and how he was appointed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles so that we will all be one people united under God. And in that passage that we have just read together, that is in fact what he's doing. It's not an easy passage. It'll take us quite a few weeks to go through it and to develop it and to understand it. So it seems here that Paul digresses somewhat. He's continuing. He's developing his train of thought from chapter 2 when this sudden thought occurs and he goes away off on a tangent and he begins to explain about how God has revealed to him something that nobody else knew. Of course, we know, and Paul would have known, that all of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3 and 16, Paul says it himself, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. What's happening here is that Paul is dictating this letter and things are occurring in his mind. He's excited. He's been talking about salvation, how our salvation was wrought for us. He's been talking about how Christ died for sinners. He's been talking about how it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, not of our own works. He gets excited, and that excitement causes him to go off on this amazing tangent, telling telling the people how God revealed that all to him. Practically speaking, for us, that's important. And the reason it's important is that we too can learn to be excited by our salvation. Let me explain to you. First of all, for church elders and pastoral leaders and those who look after young people in the church and those who exercise pastoral care and responsibility, it's important for those people. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the last century, notes here that many liberal scholars have poured criticism on Paul for these frequent deviations in style. 
just going off on a tangent like that. What's he thinking of? About his poor use of grammar and his poor use of diction, Lloyd-Jones points out that in writing this epistle, Paul's not composing a theological essay despite its great doctrinal content, not a dissertation. Years ago, I was working on my own master's degree at Harish Baptist College, and um, I was writing a dissertation on uh, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, and his catechetical, catechetical, I mean, really say catechetical message, methods, my mouth's all caught up, his methods of catechesis and doing a dissertation on that, and I would have liked some help with it. And they had a, a tutor who was um, to do progress evaluations with me, and so I would have gone round to see him every so often, and he would have looked through my work, and he would have said to me, oh, here, hold on, you haven't stuck to the rules of Harvard referencing here. You have to put in your footnotes, and you have to put in your endnotes in the correct order. And you ha- I'm saying, I don't want help with endnotes and footnotes and Harvard referencing. I want help with the history. Oh, you've got to do that yourself. My job is to make sure that your essay is presented in such a way that it meets the university standards. And if it meets the university standards, you'll get points for that. And if you don't meet the university standards, then you'll lose points. But I want to know about the history. I want to know about what Baxter was doing and what he was trying to achieve. I want to know about the reformed pastor. I want to be able to explain that. No, no. My job is to get you to write in such a way that it is a formal essay. Paul isn't doing that. Paul's not writing a formal essay or a dissertation hoping for the approval of some secular examiner. Paul's writing to brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's writing a pastoral letter. He's writing a letter that is going to reach into the heart and the mind and the soul of the readers, something that's going to comfort them, something that's going to give them assurance in their faith. He's writing as a pastor and a preacher to Christian believers, and that's important for us. If Paul felt that this digression was necessary, that he had to explain to the people how he received this great revelation from God, then it didn't matter if it wasn't grammatically correct. What mattered was that he looked after their pastoral well-being, preaching and teaching in a church. Pastoral ministry must never stoop to be merely academic. It must be filled with warmth and heartfelt concern for the souls of the people that we minister to. That's one lesson that we can learn from the fact that Paul was prepared to digress in his thoughts in order to bring a point home to the people he was speaking to. And for all Christians, theology is great. 
It's good to sit and to to ruminate over our theological points and to make sure that we're ticking all the boxes as far as our doctrinal standards are concerned. I, I like that. But it can't stop there. Theology issues in concern for others. And it leads to praise, it leads to doxology, it leads to learning more about our great God, our Saviour Jesus Christ, our wonderful redemption, how the Holy Spirit is giving us a down payment of heaven, a guarantee of our inheritance, just by indwelling us bringing us into God's kingdom, into his family, bringing those of us who were afar off, nigh in Christ. That should cause us to praise him, to lift up his name from the very depths of our being, to have confidence in our prayers, to be bold in our witness. For Paul, his excitement just bursts out in praise over and over and over again in response to God's goodness. Look at how he did it in Ephesians 3 and verse 20, where he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly over all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So the practical point here is that as Paul goes off on this digression of thought, he's not worried about a formal presentation. He's more worried about the souls of the people under his care. And he's happy to make grammatical changes if it simply means that he reaches into the hearts of people with the gospel. And that's all I want you to note about that. And the reason I want you to note note about it is that it is about the structure of the chapter as we shall come to look at it. If you're like me and you like writing on your Bible, then what you could maybe do is before verse 2, put a wee bracket. And then after verse 13, put another wee bracket. Because Commentators will tell you that's a parenthesis. Helps us to understand the structure of the overall chapter before we begin to understand the verses. Second point is to look again at verse 1. We've seen the for this cause, but Paul goes on. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So we've seen the digression. I want to see now Paul's condition, for he is a prisoner. And he's writing this letter from Rome. Again, we're just providing background for the the rest of the chapter, for what's to come. He's writing this letter from Rome. He's a prisoner there. And as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he's waiting to be tried before Caesar. And if you're with us over the past years, you will have gone through the book of Acts with us, and you will have learned about how he was arrested in Jerusalem, how he was taken by the Romans to the capital of Rome. He had appealed to Caesar. It was a right as a Roman citizen, and now he's under a house arrest. If you look back to the book of Acts, chapter 28 and verse 30, you will see 
um, the conditions in which he was living. And they were unusual conditions because uh, although he was under arrest, he was able to continue his ministry. Let's turn back for a wee moment to Acts chapter 28 and verse 30. Paul's lockdown period. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. And here's an interesting word, interesting phrase. No man forbidding him. So he was receiving visitors. We know, for example, from that same chapter that a delegation of Jewish leaders came from a local synagogue. We know that he was attended by Christians who helped him and who prayed with him. A man who wrote down his letters for him. We know that he taught Christian doctrine to all of those who would come And yet at the same time, he was night and day chained to a Roman soldier with a chain from the soldier's arm to his arm. We know that he couldn't leave the house. We know that there was no possibility of escape. And so later on, he would seek prayer from the Ephesian believers that even in those circumstances, he would be a good witness to those who visited, even to those who guarded him. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 19, right near the very end of the book, Ephesians 6 and verse 19. What do we read there? As for me, and for me, praying for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's a prisoner, and yet even in prison he wants to speak boldly for Christ. He tells us that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Of course, literally and physically, he's a prisoner of Rome, isn't he? He's been arrested, and he's in captivity at the orders of the Roman state, And yet here he's stating that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1 and verse 13, he talks about being in bonds for Christ. Um, That verse, Philippians 1 and verse 29, for example, says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. He's in prison because he is a believer in Jesus, because he's a follower. Now, I think that's good for us, good encouragement for us. In these days in which we live, it is quite possible that you could be arrested for being a Christian. I was warned a few months ago, uh, one man said to me, see the things you say in a pulpit, you could get arrested. Good job was not recorded. Do you know, um, I'm talking about in Ballymacashan, of course, not recorded. It's recorded, just realise it's recorded here. Um, but you could be. You could be arrested for being a Christian. You could be arrested for expressing the very teachings of God's word. You could be arrested now 
for praying. Do you know that during the week, uh, the Christian Institute sent, I'm sure you you get stuff from the Christian Institute, you'll have seen a leaflet that they sent out saying that the Houses of, House of Commons has passed a clarification on the law. There was a woman arrested in England for praying silently outside a hospital where abortions were taking place. And that woman was arrested and charged and later was released because the law was not clear on that matter. And the House of Commons, the very slime pit of Satan, has now tightened the law so that praying silently outside a hospital, even if you're not using words, is now illegal. Did you know that? And you can be arrested for it. Well, you see, if you're arrested for praying in the street silently, you're just the same as Paul. You are a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's in prison because he is a follower of the Lord. But then following Christ is not meant to be a bed of roses. Sure, it's not. Nice Christianity has reached the end of its time. Christianity is warfare. And warfare is always grim, and wherefore war, warfare is always gory, and you will suffer for Christ. And those early Christians of Paul's day, that suffering became imprisonment and death and torture. The hands of gladiators are the teeth of wild beasts. But Paul's a willing prisoner of Christ. He would be no other place. His only prayer is not that he would be released, but that even in his bonds, he would speak boldly for Jesus. What would you rather be, my friend? Would you rather be a prisoner of Christ or a prisoner of this world? The poet George Matheson wrote in his poem, Make Me a Captive Lord. Then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Paul's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. God, make us all prisoners of Christ, so that when the day comes that we're arrested by the state, our only hope and wish will be that others will hear the gospel. And a prisoner for the Gentiles, he says here. He repeats it in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, where he's in the same circumstances. And he says, I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather onto the furtherance of the gospel, so that in my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and at all other places. See, that's an important thing. There's a pastoral concern, remember, here in Paul's mind. Something that caused him to change his direction, to go into this long parenthesis, because Paul had spent three years with these Ephesian Christians. He's preached the gospel to them. He's encouraged them to come to Christ. He wants them to live for him. 
They've heard the word, they've answered the call, they've placed their life in the hands of the Lord, and now the very man who brought them that life-changing message is himself in jail. Some of them must be saying, why? Why is this godly man suffering? Why has God, whom Paul has faithfully served, why has God allowed this man to be arrested and placed in captivity and be facing death? Why did God not spare him? Why did God not save him? Why did God not step in and rescue him? These Ephesian Christians might draw the wrong conclusion. They might sink back into despair and turn away. Paul needed to give them assurance. He needs to tell them that his imprisonment is part of God's plan, another way for the gospel to be extended, that no matter what happens to us, God always means it for his glory. So in verse 13 of the chapter, he says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Matthew Henry comments, while he was in prison, Paul suffered much there. And though it was upon their account that he suffered, yet he would not have them discouraged or dismayed, seeing God had done such great things for them by his ministry. What a tender concern was here for these Ephesians. The apostle seems to have been more solicitous lest they should be discouraged and faint upon his tribulations than about what he himself endured. And to prevent this, he tells them that his sufferings were for their glory and would be so far from being a great discouragement. So we've seen Paul's digression and we've seen his imprisonment. And we've learned that in all of this, there is the heart of a pastor reaching out to people that he loves in the Lord and setting for us an example of true Christianity, taking the part of Christ, not being afraid to speak up, even if it leads to personal suffering, knowing that suffering will further the gospel and bring glory to God, and at the same time making sure that those who know him are not discouraged by what he's going through. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.